Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kasesnov. I am very honored and very delighted to have as my guest today, David Peters. David is a professor of integrated healthcare and clinical director at the University of Westminster. Trained as a general practitioner, he has long incorporated complementary medicine practices such as osteopathy into his practice and has been a champion of holistic and integrated approaches to health. He was chair of the British Holistic Medical Association until 2010 and was a founding director of the College of Medicine. And most relevant to this discussion today, amongst his many other hats that he wears, David is currently the clinical director of the Centre of Resilience at the University of Westminster, which is exactly the topic we want to talk about. So first of all, David, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. I'm delighted. So let's start at the beginning and define our terms. Well, how, do, how can we understand resilience? What is it? Mm. <clears throat> okay, well, um, if, if we go back to some sort of earlier metaphors about um, human development, uh, let's, let's look at stress first. So uh, stress is a word from engineering, really, isn't it? It's, a, it's, about, um, it's about how forces deform uh, inanimate substances so a piece of metal you 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 put a strain on it and the stresses are the impact of those strains on the metal so things get bent out of shape okay so that was the original metaphor that Hans Selye introduced into medicine really to to explain that um uh basically that life requires energy uh, that the things we do they whether it's at a chemical level whether it's at a, a level of movement whether it's a level of mind all of these take up energy um, and that energy has an impact on on, on our systems that's the, that's an old way of looking at it so um, but really humans humans aren't like that I mean even plants aren't like that if you uh, if you put a, a uh, physical forces uh, are exerted on a plant it will grow into a new shape it will it will it will indeed uh, uh, be uh, deformed you could say like a plant that moves into the um, moves away from the wind uh, will grow in a certain a certain direction a certain shape but equally so um, uh, a plant which is flexible will bend with the wind and then come back to its original shape now that's that's interesting so uh metal minerals do one thing when they are subject to strain plants it seems can do a another but uh, and animals actually when they when they're subject to uh, stresses if you like if they're if they're um subject to adversity they actually don't go back to how they were before they learn uh, and so in a sense whereas we often talk about well when you're stressed you know you need to recover and you're going to bounce back in fact there's a certain response to adversity um, that actually changes the way you are so we adapt and, and Celia talked a lot about adaptation and the fact that adaptation takes energy and stresses, I suppose, in that sense, are harmful when we we don't have the energy, or we don't have the information, or we don't have the support that allows us to adapt. Okay, so stress adaptation, resilience, not about bouncing back entirely, but also about bouncing forward. So how do we, how do we, how do we learn through adversity? And um, that's a very important topic because. Um, uh, organisms but let's stick with human beings um they they are subject to adaptive pressure they are subject to adversity right from the beginning uh, even in utero if you like before birth um, uh, a fetus can be subjected to uh, positive or negative uh, intrauterine environments that may be chemical it may be um it may be uh, physical anyway um right from the beginning there are demands on the organism as it develops not be um, in the long run or even in the short term um, helpful 
So let's look at that right from the beginning. So, so the birth process itself, the human birth process, is is pretty stressful. Uh, our, our an infant's head is big, and the pelvic cavity is quite small. So right from the beginning, we go through quite a traumatic process in getting into the world, and then how we how we're greeted in into the world, how we're how we're held, how we how we are. Um, supported in those early moments when we come from darkness and warmth into into the delivery room or into the warm bathing pool, whatever. Uh, those are those are moments of of adversity which require us to adapt. Therefore, okay. So then we come into a whole question of holism and how uh, what kind of things we need to take into account if we want to create healthy adaptation in order to support long-term ability to bounce forward. Uh, well, you, you, can, you can, at every stage of that process, from um, nourishing the, the, the developing baby to how that baby is, is, um, enters into the world, uh, and, then, and then later, very crucially, um, the, the infant's experience of um, attachment how secure, how, um, how, how co-regulated, it's an important idea, how, how an infant um, is, um, how an infant is by the primary carer is um, supported in their emotional development. And this, sounds, this may sound strange, but if you think about it, the early experience of an infant is entirely emotional. There is no thought thought and words don't begin until later in the second year of life so the early experience of emotion has to be regulated by the good enough carer and so we now know that actually those early ideas in in, um, in attachment psychology that came from uh, winnicott and others we now know that that has a huge impact on the developing autonomic nervous system so the the early attachment relationship is part of a fundamental foundation for creating resilience. Resilience in the sense of how do we learn to tolerate powerful emotion? This is really important because um, that large head with its large brain and its large frontal cortex is a pretty recent arrival on the planet. Um, it enables us to think, enables us to multitask, it enables us to integrate all kinds of sensation and thought and emotion uh, when it's working well but this new piece of um, wetware software whatever you want to call it this new piece of uh, medial prefrontal cortex which is so so crucial to our um, uh, acting as, as a, a truly human ways is bolted onto some pretty ancient um, uh, uh, let's call it software, the, the emotional brain. So the mammalian brain is the emotional brain. Uh, it is primed to look out for trouble. Uh, how sensitive it is and how hypervigilant it is uh, depends a great deal on uh, previous experience. Uh, and so we come back to the attachment relationship, which regulates how we... Um, tolerate powerful emotion um, the capacity for that resilient ability to uh, tolerate fear uh, anger uh, to tolerate um, uh, what we may interpret as dangerous in the environment that's that's very much set up early on in life but those emotions, those are survival emotions, they're ancient emotions. We have emotions like that because they have helped our ancestors escape large carnivores um, or hunt um, for food and gather food and protect one another and tend and befriend. Uh, however, uh, those emotions now are hijacked in modern life by all kinds of things which aren't literally going to kill us but may feel like they are. Uh, anxieties, uh, Mortgages, money, um, homelessness, I mean, you know, all kinds of profound existential threats will trigger ancient emotions. Now, if we, if we, if we don't um, have that early foundation of emotion regulation, then we're not going to be very resilient. Uh, 
because in the face of life's inevitable uh, challenges, um, some of us are going to get angry much more easily than others. Some of us are going to get fearful much more easily than others. Some of us are going to be so um, uh, overwhelmed in our perception of what's going on inside us or outside us that we actually will collapse, may collapse and fold. So these 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 um, these these emotional disturbances have a huge impact on our physiology if you are stuck in flight and fight emotions in threat avoidance emotions you are going to have a very upregulated circulatory system you're going to have problems in the muscle body because you're braced for um, escape or attack uh, on the other hand if you've gone um, into the sort of more burned out um, overwhelmed the sense of being trapped and defeated by life you will have gone into fold folding freezing fawning um, that whole traumatic post-traumatic picture of um, of collapse so we need to understand that actually what we mean by resilience is on the one hand about how we um, are able to tolerate emotion uh, how are we able to perhaps um, uh, have a language of emotion, how we have uh, a language which allows us to communicate how we're feeling and having uh, ways of thinking about uh, our predicament which allow us to learn uh, rather than act out as if we were um, threatened by um, physical danger. And I think it's really important now uh, if we consider um, the challenges that we are surrounded by. Um, particularly what confronts uh, young people. And if we look at the epidemic of um, mental ill health um, amongst our youngsters, uh, one has to wonder whether it is connected to uh, uh, a more or less conscious feeling that the world is in great danger, that the planet is um, uh, uh, no longer um, biospherically uh, sustainable, that, um, that politics and terrorism have taken us to a place where no one ever feels safe. And I think we are an important point in our culture where um, uh, something has to, um, you know, in terms of, in terms of what, what are the skills that would make us resilient now, individually resilient, um, certainly one, would at least need to have um, uh, um, a broad enough understanding of how our emotions and our body are, and our body processes are um, so intertwined that um, we need to get over this old notion that the mind and the body are separate um, for all kinds of reasons. We, we now understand that emotions arise from the body, they're interpreted by the brain, the brain will interpret them, the mind will interpret them, largely in terms of how um, previous experiences have been, um, have been processed in the past. So the mind and the body are not separate, the past and the present emotionally and intellectually in terms of my thinking are not separate. Not only are they not separate in this lifetime, but we are um, very much connected to an ancestral past, a mammalian emotional brain, our reptilian lower brain uh, and these are parts of the brain if you like that will take over when we're under great when we're under threat so it's a big picture of resilience and and it's has a i think it has important implications for healthcare because uh, we're beginning to to have a model that explains why um why we have stress-related disease that it's explicable in terms of our evolutionary biology and the way modern life and um, the modern food possibly, uh, um, the air we breathe, the water we drink, are all perhaps not ideal for the kinds of physiology uh, and emotional life that, we've, that we're evolved for. So how is modern life from how is modern life impacting on um, on our physiology and our mind? Well, I've tried to map that out a little bit. Uh, and what are the consequences of that? Okay, so 
in modern life, uh, let's start. Let's start with um, if you think of mind and movement and metabolism, those three areas that concern um, models of healthcare. Okay, so we, we want to we want to unify um, those three different aspects of of our um, psychology and physiology. Right. So what what can we say about um, uh, how the mind dysregulates our body. Well, I think I've touched on that through attachment um, disorder. We could talk about um, how trauma, the impact of trauma, uh, dysregulates the autonomic nervous system. Uh, we could talk about how uh, modern threats, which are not, we could, literally can't run away from, how they impact on our physiology by producing overactivity or underactivity which then impacts on the cardiovascular system and the immune system so how do we then um how do we help uh how do we help ourselves to re-regulate um to re-regulate our physiology using the mind i suppose there are two ways really one, one is um is the notion that goes back to herbert benson and the relaxation response so there is there is the stress response and it involves um if you like the accelerator pedal of the body flight fight but also the hunting instinct the kind of positive dopamine um fueled seeking of, of of resources we need shelter we need mates we need food all of those things put us into kind of uh, speeding up physiology and that's okay as long as we know how to get back to the cave <laughs> because that's the other part of our of our regulatory system so stress is okay as long as you can recover afterwards so the question is you know where where is where is our cave where is our cave mentally how do we how do we quieten the mind and the emotions down how do we relax the body so we've got mind and movement and how does that impact on metabolism well it obviously does because um uh, we're not evolved to digest if you like, while we're still hunting. <laughs> if, we're in, if we're in hunting or hunting metabolism, the guts don't work properly. The blood is in the muscles. The, 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 the intestines are not properly nourished. The, the enzymes for digestion aren't working right. So all of those things can have an impact. As all the old naturopaths said, you know, that illness begins in the, in the gut, in the digestion. And there's something in that because in as much as we live stressful lives if we don't recover then we don't digest so if the cave is about resting and digest and digesting the cave is also the place where we tend and befriend it's where we make relationship it's where we it's it's a state of physiology where we're quiet enough to to communicate well the the, the cave mind if you like the recovery mind activates the social engagement system through the vagal through the vagal regulatory system so we need for physiological reasons, for reasons of thought and emotion, but also for reasons of relationship, to be able to to access recovery mind. And how do we do that? Well, um, yeah, all kinds of obvious ways. Um, we need we need to have uh, places of safety. We need to have um, ways of triggering states of mind that help us recover. So relaxation response, yoga meditation mindfulness uh if we're in a bind we need a bind where we're we feel stuck and in conflict and we feel a bit we feel trapped we may need to have the support of someone we can speak to it may be a friend it may be professional help but that that talking helps reactivate the cave system of feeling safe um so mind uh, metabolism the guts uh, movement uh, it's very interesting that when we are, uh, when we are pent up, when we feel we can't discharge emotion, um, exercise can be hugely helpful. Uh, we are we are evolved to move. We're not evolved to sit in front of laptops all day. Now I have to think sometimes I'm a bit guilty of doing that myself, but it's really important to to move. And the movement can be whatever you want to do, and whatever the movement is about 
It can be aerobic movement. If you, know, you want to charge up your cardiovascular system, you want to use the limbs, that's fine. You might want to dance, you want expressive movement. You might want to move with others. You might want to be more flexible. You might want to stretch the sinews and yoga. But all of those things have an impact on, if you like, settling the body down again. Um, and when you settle the body down, the mind and the emotions will follow suit. Um, what haven't we touched on? I suppose we haven't touched on too much enough on the physiology, on the actual physiology, the, the metabolic aspects of um, of this mind-body connection. I think one of the things we're discovering now through um, genomics or genetic testing is that some of us are much more sensitive to adrenaline much more sensitive to dopamine than others some of us have relatively healthy active detoxification pathways through the liver um, others less so uh, so we're coming to a, a time when um, individual biology can be quite helpful um, for a practitioner who wants to inform their client about relative risks um, um, risks around um, uh, coping with stress I mean if you have a if you have problems with the COMT gene the, 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 the methyl transferase gene which detoxifies adrenaline then you're going to find that when you wound up you stay wound up for longer than the up to most people you're going to be more prone to um, uh, to anxiety. Uh, equally so, if we move away from genomics and look at how we can track emotions, um, we've been looking at heart rate variability, which tells you a lot about uh, over a series of days how someone's accelerator and brakes are working. So we, we can, again, um, help someone to individualize an understanding of what it is that winds them up and how they can calm themselves down. So we've now got ways of looking quite uh, intricately at metabolism through genomics. Equally, there are some interesting tests around how the guts of gut works. There are some very interesting tests around the autonomic system um, monitoring. Um, so what are we what are we what are we really looking at now? Well, in terms of, I think the, I think the most possibly the most challenging group of people to work with. Um, I find are people who've been subject to um, early life difficulties which make their attachment relationships uh, um, uncomfortable and which uh, have dysregulated their autonomic system um, so that they are uh, often stuck in high arousal or are very flat and fatigued um, and what to do about that in the long term. Uh, that's one set of challenges. <clears throat> I think another set of challenges really uh, for the whole system, particularly um, NHS, is, is what can be done about lifestyle-related chronic disease. Um, how do we help people who have fallen into lifestyle patterns that may have encouraged um, uh, midlife diabetes, diabetes 2? Um, what do we do about... Um, the, 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 uh, and it is an epidemic, not amongst only amongst young people. But what do we do about the epidemic of, of um, uh, let's call it depression, but something that's presenting more and more to doctors as a as a, a deep dissatisfaction, unhappiness, sadness. Uh, something like six million people on on SSRIs on antidepressants. Mm -hmm. This this can't be. This has to say something about our culture. Um, so this is a, a deeply worrying trend that people now are feeling so unsafe in various ways. And that, I think, once again, may speak ab about the, the times we're in. Um, are you, you, are you less a proponent of the idea that, 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 you know, depression and all of these mental health issues are kind of uh, chemical brain imbalances? That, that no, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm not okay. I think that's part of the story. And I think there's even a, sort of an evolutionary story that, that, that explains why it is that when we, are, um, when we are constantly stressed, we do get changes in brain chemistry and we get changes in the inflammatory system as well. Mm -hmm. You know, stress is pro-inflammatory. So there is a, there is a metabolic link here, 
But the question before that is, why are human beings feeling so unable to adapt to the challenges of our times? And I think two reasons you can say on the one hand, well, um, what is it about our society and our relationships which are not preparing our, um, particularly our young people, for, um, for a sense of safety and stability? There is that. And then on the other hand, what is what are the challenges we see in the culture, in the in, in the what's been called the great unraveling, the sixth mass extinction, the sixth mass extinction? Mm-hmm. What, what 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 can we say about perhaps um, the sense of unease that many people are feeling, which is actually not unhealthy? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe we should be feeling uneasy. Maybe we should be feeling. Um, uh, some kind of anger and fear about the state of the world. The problem being, of course, <laughs> that maybe anger and fear are what have got us our culture to this place. Yep. Especially um, when people feel actually kind of helpless to do anything about it. Yeah. That's, that's the issue. That, that's right. That's that's exactly right, and that is that that is that shift from feeling go being in flight and fight, or being in highly active protest to burning out and falling into this trapped and collapsed place. But I think I think in 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 the face of the challenges of our time, this is this is the most exciting and crucial time ever. I think in human evolution, we are we are faced with a vast evolutionary challenge here. What is going to get us out of it? it, it Anger doesn't seem to make a difference um, because there's, you know, who do we blame? I mean, we're all part of the problem. Uh, fear just makes people um, shrink back from the challenges. What do we? What are we to do to maintain what Joanna Macy calls active hope? Uh, and how do we? How do we face the challenge together of um, of of going beyond helplessness because i think helplessness unconsciously helplessness is 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 rife in the culture now and it is um it is the physiology of um it is the physiology of um as i've said freeze and fold it, it probably impacts profoundly on on the immune system is this uh, part it, of the um, the polyvagal theory from Porges, the idea that, that there's another branch of the vagus system that does, you know, has also this kind of arrested behavior, this kind of fold thing? It is. It, 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 it's, it's, the, it's, it's the lizard vagal. Right. Um, I think this is important new theory. So I, I've, I've emphasized how um, important the, the autonomic nervous system is in, in terms of generating emotion. Uh, when the autonomic nervous system, when the accelerator pedals down, we, we go into threat avoidance or we go into resource seeking. When the uh, autonomic nervous system it goes into high parasympathetic, several things can happen. If, if, it's, the, if it's the ancient vagal system, the lizard vagal, that, that that makes us collapse. We go into lizard freeze. Yeah, we are stuck, and we and we are uh, unable to respond. Uh, we just hope the threat will go away. So I think there's a lot of that around. And it's absolutely not voluntary. I mean, if anyone's ever experienced that feeling, there's nothing you can do about it. It's like your your whole body just stops against. I think I think, I think everyone everyone's everyone's experienced it. I mean, if you, you know, if you're walking through a, in an area you don't know, and something suddenly moves across your vision, you'll 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 freeze. You'll 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 freeze, and you'll you'll. Your your attention, your your orientate towards the threat, and your body. First, it will speed up, but you'll be you'll be in a place of, you know, it's it's don't notice me, just in case this is a really a you know, a large carnivore. And then, of course, a moment later, you realise it was just a paper bag blowing in the wind. Yeah, but by then, your whole autonomic system is is highly aroused. But anyway, you've gone first into this freeze place. Now, if if it had been a threat. You, you you might want might you might well have been um, and you'd been attacked. The the possibility is that if you were unable to resist, you would have collapsed mm-hmm. into that whole numb 
dissociated, you know, the lights are on but nobody's home. So that, that's an, an ancient evolved system that is intended to, um, to help us suffer less when with this danger of death. It's like the mouse being plagued by the cat pretends right. to be dead. So that's, that's the primitive vagal system. There's another vagal system, which is the, which is the more evolved uh, uh, recent vagal system, um, which on the one hand uh, keeps the gut going and um, tends to sort of innovate what's below the diaphragm. And it, it, um, it works um, by uh, uh, keeping the brakes on the accelerator system. The accelerator system's always working because when you need it, you need it instantly. So it works by holding the 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 over arousal system in check, um, and that's that's what we used to think the autonomic system was. It was the accelerator and the brakes, and that's it. What what Porges has pointed out is that actually, in there are some situations where we 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 are both highly aroused but but relaxed at the same time. So he said, "Well, hang on. Which, which, what? How can the autonomic system be doing that?" Um, and so he came up with the idea that there is a more recently evolved vagal system. It's particularly concerned with um, with innovating unconscious behaviour and physiology above the diaphragm, and it and a lot of its activity runs from the heart to the brain. When I was at medical school a long time ago, but I think still to a certain extent. We were all taught that the vagus innovates the heart, and there's a connection between the between the brain and the heart. But actually, most of the traffic goes the other way. What's the consequences of this? Well, this branch of the vagal system um, th- does a number of things. One of the things we know about it is that w- is when the when when we feel um, when we're feeling anxious, uh, we have less access to uh, to clear thought that we make we make more errors and we experience people as more dangerous and so there is a there is a, a sense in which um, there's emotional traffic which runs from the, from the interior if you like from the interior of the body and the organs to the brain influencing how we experience the world and how we respond on the other hand it has it also can have the 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 if you like the opposite effect when when we when we feel calm inside um, we not only think more clearly uh, and see the world as less dangerous but we also communicate better now how come well it may have something to do with the fact that the same heart-brain branch of the vagus also goes to the sternomastoid muscles, to the facial muscles, to the ossicles of the ear, so we tune to the human voice. It influences the way we vocalize, so that the voice is more prosodic. A vagal, a, a, a vagal smile, a real smile, a spontaneous smile, depends on this uh, heart-brain connection. So this is very interesting. <clears throat> so if you think about it, when we're feeling when we're feeling safe enough, we socially engage, we communicate in a way that is exploring relationship and the possibility that these are friends around us. So this is this is good this is a good cave space. This is tend and befriend. When things start to look a little bit more edgy, we move down into mammalian physiology. We get into flight and fight. That's the that's the other Vegas. So the brakes come off the sympathetic nervous system. Huh? We're ready for we're ready for danger. And um, uh, if if there's a really th- overwhelmed danger of death, and this is the kind of the trauma situation, then um, the forebrain turns off. Um, we may we may literally collapse, um, fold. We may dissociate. You know, just we're no longer effectively present so that memories aren't, aren't processed. So this is the kind of trauma state um, where we've gone into this trapped, collapsed mode where the connection between the brain and body have been lost or the full brain and the body, which is why uh, very often, uh, even with relatively small traumatic incidents, people say, well, I can't remember what, I really can't remember what happened. And yet, uh, if something unpleasant has happened in, I don't know, a, a room with purple walls, then a person may then find at some point in the, after the traumatic event that 
they get very uneasy in circumstances which remind them of of that original trauma but they may not remember it they only know that they start to have a panic attack when certain things trigger those those unconscious memories memories which are in the body but haven't been actually stored um, in an accessible way in the brain so so these are these are new insights into the autonomic nervous system into our emotional life and um, the evolution of the emotions they have a big uh, big implications for how we understand mental mental um, and emotional um, um, the discomfort uh, and illness they have a big impact on the way we have, we the way we we will will come we will come to understand um, chronic disease uh, both cardiovascular uh, i think and um, and metabolic disease like diabetes but we, it's just it's just the beginning and it, and into this of course then come our new understanding of, of genetics and how we can use use genomic analysis to create individual biology so that we know that this person will respond better to um, this herb or this drug and that person may be more prone to this kind of mental upset uh, than the other person might may. right well it is it is a new time what's this got to do with complementary medicine well um I suppose my answer to that is that there is something that this this is this may slightly be slightly controversial that there is a great mystery in um, in medicine and it's always been a mystery um, about how some why can some people um, make their clients feel better almost they even their presence uh, may may help you know there are some people when they walk into the into the room light the room up and there are other people when they walk into the room do the opposite <laughs> so there is something there is something around um, how people uh, experience one another which can be uh, not just in terms of oh it's really nice being around that person but actually when i'm when i'm around a practitioner who makes me feel uh, back to this word safe what makes me feel safe then may, maybe there are uh, changes in my physiology which move me away from uh, disorder and uh, upset in my autonomic nervous system towards um, order and regulation and the sense of safety. So, um, Herbert Benson talked about remembered wellness, um, and this is a very interesting idea. And he said that actually, what he when he was trying to understand the relaxation response, and here I've got to name it now, the placebo response, he said that a lot of it, a lot of it depended on a person's ability to remember wellness. Now, if we, if we go back to this idea of attachment disorder, uh, you know, sometimes I say to a person, when was the last time you really felt safe? And quite often I get the response, I've never felt safe. So the experience of, of safety in the therapeutic relationship is really terribly, um, uh, terribly important. And I think whether you're an alternative practitioner, complementary practitioner, whatever you want to call it, or a, or a conventional practitioner, uh, some, some, some of those practitioners are able to, um, are able to trigger that human, um, human healing response. And now, okay, so does that, does that relate to what goes on in, um, in certain kinds of therapy? Well, yes. I think in just about all psychotherapies, there's no material exchange. There's an exchange of words and emotions, and something happens which over time will help a person heal, not just um, mentally, emotionally, but um, but in their body too. Um, we know that there are responses to hypnosis that are profoundly um, physiological. That we know that there are ways in which um, people can uh, can access altered states of consciousness where where pain is um, where pain is very much um, 
uh, pain experience is very much downshifted. Uh, we also know there are states of consciousness where pain, sensation, and emotion are very much upregulated. So what's going on here? Um, um, if we if we talk about uh, a, an effective consultation, uh, it has this human element. It has this element of inducing a sense of safety. Um, it seems to have a lot to do with how that practitioner uh, is, is present and is accepting of the client. Um, it's been one said of the things by, I heard from clients all the time is it makes a huge difference whether or not they feel heard. It absolutely does. Yeah. Um, unconditional positive regard, I think it was described as it doesn't, you know, it, it kind of in psychotherapy, it sort of doesn't matter what you think you're doing or what your, or what your, your method is. It's, it, it's the unconditional positive regard. It's the fact that the patient, the client feels accepted. It's terribly important. Okay. And then on the other hand, there is all the elements of, of consultation around what do you do to the patient? Well, there's, you know, there's touching. That has a huge impact on physiology. Um, there may be uh, the use of needles, maybe the use of oils and ointments, and other things which may be absorbed through the skin. There are smells which which may be um, conducive to this relaxation response. Don't more than a relaxation response. I think I call it a, a coherent response, a human response. It is a. It is. Uh, now understood that that, that the, the the so-called placebo response has a, an impact on brain chemistry through, through different pathways, different 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 kinds of brain chemistry. So this human response is physiological, and and I believe that um, that a, a, that a, an effective practitioner is triggering the these sorts of physiological response, which are can be anti-inflammatory which can be um, co-regulating. Uh, and then, of course, you know, well, what about substances? Well, of course, herbs are powerful. Yeah, but you know, the, the right herbs are incredibly powerful and have a, a, a great impact on the body. So many of our drugs come from herbs. So it would be ridiculous to dismiss herbal medicine. Homeopathy, I don't know. The jury is out on that. I think they, I, I've seen it have profound effects on people. Um, and yet we don't know, we have absolutely no idea how. Acupuncture, um, yeah, well, there's absolutely no doubt when you stick needles into people, uh, you get profound changes in their endorphins, but also in other, um, other kinds of neurotransmitter. Uh, acupuncture, yeah, okay, that seems to work on, on, on the, perhaps on the fascial system. It certainly impacts on the, on the structure of the body. Uh, chiropractic osteopathy, um, can have a huge impact on uh, tensions, tensions in the body, perhaps, but in, in some way through the sensory system back to the organs. Um, I think we really don't understand nearly enough about this yet. And of course, the problem is that, that there is not enough funding for research into basic mechanisms. So uh, we're in a bit of a bind, in as much as science is saying, well, you know, how can these, how can these um, methods work we don't have a basic mechanism but on the other hand we don't have a basic mechanism because there are no there are no major funds that are looking for them uh, in an area where this kind of research would cost many many millions of pounds and of course there's no profit to be made out of um, out of you can't you can't patent a pair of hands <laughs> you can't patent the skills of a, of a great psychotherapist Absolutely, and, and there, there, there again. You know, there's a great problem. You know, so people say to me, "Does complementary therapy work?" And I say, "Well, that's not the right question. It's like saying, do medicines work? Which medicine for which condition, and 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 which complementary medicine?" And and anyway, you know, every person who practices acupuncture probably practices it slightly differently. I mean, and and you have to you have to wrestle with this. Just there, are, just as there are doctors who are more effective than others. Um, whatever they, the medicines they're using or not using, there are psychotherapists and, and complementary practitioners who are much more effective than others. Um, that's something that we perhaps um, aren't, aren't really ready to admit. These are, these are skill-based. They are, they are crafts and arts as well as sciences. Absolutely. 
absolutely no question about that. Moving back just briefly to, to the question of resilience, um, you did mention it at the beginning, but just maybe as we've sadly run out of time and I have so many more questions, um, <laughs> but um, what, what is something that somebody can do, a, a practice that they can, they can incorporate into their daily lives? Because I mean, other than your center, there's not really anyone that, anywhere that one can particularly go and learn resilience. So what, what are the sort of things, what would you recommend that a person, an individual does in order to raise their level of resilience and perhaps help them deal with their, with their daily tasks? I mean, I, for example, um, I barely see clients anymore, but if I had several clients in one day, I always would schedule time in between to allow myself to exactly get back to the state of sort of rest and repair before engaging with the next one. Um, so, but people lead incredibly challenging, busy lives, as you, as you said. So what does the man on the street do? What are simple practices that everyone can do every day in order to try and train resilience? Well, I, given that I've, I've I've said I'm basing this idea about resilience on um, on the ability to deliver a, a rather pressurized life by having time for recovery. Okay, so um, where's where does most of recovery occur in sleep? So sleep resets all kinds of body systems. Uh, is it possible to get recovery time during the day? Yes, it is. We see it constantly, um, and it's not. It's not. Um, it's not only when somebody might be sitting doing a relaxation or doing a, some meditation, um, though that may help. Uh, uh, we see people getting recovery when they're sitting with friends having lunch when they're playing the piano, when they're cooking, when they're all, all, all sorts of things, uh, send people into what we call cave time. Um, and they're quite simple things. Maybe just, you know, get away from the laptop, go and walk, uh, look at, look at, look at, look at green things, look at plants, look at whatever might be beautiful around you. Uh, notice that you are present, your feet are on the ground, <laughs> that you are moving through space, that you are actually, you have, you are a body. Um, all of those things are really just, just mindfulness methods really. But um, I think, think a lot of, a lot of the time when we're at work, we're in, we're either in, um, uh, we're either feeling hunted or we're hunting. <laughs> we're basically in, you know, we're, we've got the accelerator down. So, so m moments in the day where you can actually put the brakes on a little bit are, are terribly important. Um, ha you take a break for lunch. Yeah. Um, spend time uh, uh, in relation to people that uh, help you feel better. We know from old research back in the 70s that the the, um, the hardy executive uh, not only works with a sense of um, challenge, yeah, this is not a threat, this is a challenge. They, are, they have choice in the way they do things. Um, they're committed, they have meaning and purpose. So meaning and purpose is important. Um, feeling curious and challenged by the things that life brings towards you rather than feeling um, always threatened, although we most new things make us feel threatened at first, but then we then we, we expand and embrace and feel we can cope with things. Uh, commitment, um, uh, choice, um, having a sense of that one has creative options. So there there are attitudinal things which make us more resilient. However, if you are one of those driven people who has challenge, choice, and commitment, and they just keep the pressure on themselves all the time, that is not resilience. Now you have to have two things. You need to have a sense of um, being supported in the work setting or a place to take your issues, supervision of some kind. Uh, and you need to know how to settle the system down. So if you're a healthcare practitioner of any kind, um, take time between clients to, if, as it were, physiologically, mentally wash your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not, not only do, do we. Um, <laughs> not, not only can we cross-infect people um, 
by taking germs from one person to another when we're working on a, on a on a, an infection ward, as was discovered, and 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 the discovery was resisted back in the 19th century when someone by said, "Hey, doctors, wash your hands between patients." But now we realise that actually we pick up emotions, we catch emotions from our patients, and we need to notice what's happening in our body when when, when we catch emotion and make sure we don't transmit that emotion onto the next patient. Not such a big problem with 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 um, with therapists who have long 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 times of discussion, long consultations, but for GPs who are picking up a, a, a new interaction every seven to ten minutes, it's really important that they they do this um, emotional um, barrier nursing. Um, so what else? Well, in, in the consultation, again, if, if I'm talking to healthcare practitioners. Do notice what you're mirroring in your body, because we are we are involved in such a way that our, our the mirror system in our premotor cortex of the brain, what we 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 constantly um, pick up people's gestures, constantly pick up messages from their voice, from their face. Um, we we mirror emotion, another person's emotion in 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 our bodies so you may know and notice when you're with a, an anxious patient um, that you probably start to tense up your shoulders that you may be breathing differently and uh, that you will you will be mirroring their 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 body posture uh, you may be closing up as of when they close up uh, uh, you may be too open to them you may be picking up too much of their emotion if you're a very empathic practitioner. So I, I recommend people read Babette Rothschild on this, um, her, her books about um, about the embodied um, practitioner. I'm trying to think of what what she's got. Is it the body? The body remembers. It's a great book from, about this. So for practitioners, notice what's going on in your body. For everybody, but especially people who are working in very busy environments, make sure you you take space during the day. Make sure you find time to um, wind down in the evening, especially within a couple of hours of going to bed. Don't use blue screens. Don't use social media late at night. Um, make sure that you have relaxation time. Do what you need to do to get to get good recovery. Uh, don't drink too much because that disrupts uh, sleep architecture. Um, uh, uh, in terms of a whole of life, uh, how do we manage our time? How do we find meaning and purpose? Uh, how do we um, uh, live a life that is more or less in tune with what we're evolved for? Move enough, eat well enough, um, uh, have relationships, build relationship networks, all of these things, um, they play into the uh, all that gives us the energy to bounce forward. Fabulous. Well, our time really is almost up. Um, in fact, it's over. So I'll just quickly finish up with three little questions I ask all of my guests. London Heals about mind-body-spirit medicine, and I like to think of that in terms of health, happiness, and serenity. So serenity is going to be a, a, an easy one because we've just spent an hour talking about how to attain that to some degree. But what about health? How do you personally define health? Um, well, I, I suppose I... I how how would how do I how do I or how do I recommend? No, how do how I? you for yourself? Yes. How oh, I see. Um, yeah, I I guess I I would put this in context um, because I'm I'm in I'm in I'm in late life. So what 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 health and resilience might mean for me is would be quite different from somebody who's just been. You know, challenged with the, with new babies or you know, or, or midlife issues, uh, health health for me now, uh, mental and emotional health, is to a large degree about trying to deepen my connection with the other than human world. Um, so I I spend time out in nature. I'm interested in um, vision quest. Uh, I practice yoga and meditation and prayer every day. Uh, I haven't eaten meat for 50 years, so my diet is probably a little bit um, peculiar, pescatarian, I suppose, more or less. Um, uh, I like to walk. Uh, 
and I've done enough meditation and psychotherapy to have a reasonably good sense of, of what makes me tick. Um, I think I think in terms of relationship, um, yeah, a certain point in life, I think one has to get to where you realise it's not all about me. Uh, and if other people make me feel upset, uh, uh, I, I need to deal with that as my issue, not um, not ask them to feel differently. So I guess that's tolerance and compassion come into it. Uh, yeah. Um, so that's my movement. My, the, what I do with around movement, I've said that. What I do around metabolism, yeah, I've said that. I don't take supplements. <laughs> um, and mentally from, and spiritually, um, yeah, I think the great challenges for me now, because I'm still disease-free and fairly fit, um, are, are the emotional, spiritual challenges. Right. Yeah. What about happiness? Do you, what do you actively do to get happy? Happiness. Uh, I, I think I'm more interested in in contentment. Happiness. Happiness is, is often the sort of a you know, accelerator down and feeling safe. Yeah, it's a, it's it's about. For, for, I think very often in our in our culture, it's about it's about having having the res, the resources. It's about you know it's a hunting thing. Whereas I think. Uh, the happiness I'm more interested in is, is, is happiness of the cave, which is around you know, creativity, uh, communication, companionship, connection. Lots of C's really, aren't there? there. Um, yeah. 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 Great. And lastly, what about serenity? You talked about having um, yoga practices and meditation practices. Um, so what do you do to turn down the noise? I touch that, that that's that serenity um, so I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if that's very much in in my lived vocabulary I mean I, I'll settle for contentment really um, serenity uh, no, I don't. I don't think I. I don't think I. I don't think I want to be serene. <laughs> okay. No, I think I. I think I. I I'll settle to be actively hopeful, and um, content at the same time as I. I may, I want to maintain enough edge to be a, to be. Um, to still feel I can make a difference. Serenity suggests to me. A little bit of dissociation and withdrawal, yeah, um, yeah. Serenity, no. <laughs> <laughs> Great answers. I love it. It's uh, it's always interesting to see what people say to these these questions. Thank mm. you so much, David, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We've learned a whole hell of a lot. Um, uh, there's a million things I still want to ask you, so I'm afraid at some point you're just going to have to come back. <laughs> yeah. It's quite, it's quite a long podcast, so um, uh, let me yeah. let me know when it's up. And, uh, I will do, without question. Thank you so work. much for the work that you do. Please keep doing great work because the world really needs it. Thank you. Right. I will. So, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that episode about resilience as much as I did. I think this is a hugely important subject, as are, of course, all of the subjects that we discuss. But this one, I think, is really um, important, and it's becoming, in a sense, a sort of a discipline by itself. It's, it's, one could view it as, you know, the, uh, the method of, of surviving modern life and something that we really do have to actively think about and perhaps actively train um, in future episodes, I suspect we're going to be dipping into this subject a little bit more because I think it's really very powerful and it's extremely important for healthcare professionals, um, such as therapists, such as doctors, such as everybody working in this field who are subjected to um, the, the tensions and the strains of human suffering, which pulls on us in a way that perhaps other jobs may not so um, in quite such an emotional trigger way 
And I think supporting this group of people is something very, very dear to my heart because I know how much they give to help others. And we need to find a way of encouraging their resilience so that they don't burn out and then stop being able to help others because they themselves are suffering. So take these words very seriously from David and do all of these things and just make sure you spend enough time in your cave. Please rate, review us on iTunes if you enjoy this kind of information. Please distribute it at will. Share shamelessly, as I always say. Um, come and visit us over on our Facebook page and like and support us there and read any posts. And please, you're welcome to share any information that we post. And of course, if you would like extended podcast notes, exclusive access to extended podcast notes, then just come on over to londonheal.com. Sign up as a London Heal Insider. And with every new episode, you'll receive notifications with the links and extensive notes. So, dear listeners, that just leaves me, as always, to first of all, thank you so much for staying with us and listening to us week in, week out, and wishing you health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>